0: Good morning. If this is your first time with Anchor Church, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for the church. We're going to begin our day today together uh, reading from uh, an adapted version of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is important. So the Apostles didn't write the Apostles' Creed, just so you know. Um, but it is something that uh, encapsulates what the Apostles taught, and ultimately what the Bible taught, some very simple things about what we believe Uh, And it's important for us as the people of God to affirm together some of those things uh, periodically just to remember why we're here and what we do and what we believe. And this reality that we believe about Jesus, that if you are a Christian is true of you now, that you've been bought by his blood, you've been redeemed to life in him, to life with God forever is not new. It's not new with Anchor Church in 2015, and, and honestly, it wasn't even new at the cross because it was God's plan before the foundations of the earth to redeem a people for His own possession, for His glory. To put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And that we as His people believe these things, not because we loved Him, but because He loved us first. Because we stand as blood-bought sinner saints who've been purchased by Jesus for life and for His glory forever. And so I, I will read it, uh, and we can read it together. Uh, I will try and read it slowly. I am a fast talker who drinks too much coffee. So together, let's, let's read this. We believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, who suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus's church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and eternal life. Amen. Uh, Join me in prayer. Jesus, we pray for your broken world. Uh, We pray. For those who have left everything behind to go as missionaries to Asia to Africa to South America to, to even the far corners of North America we, we pray for those who carry the good news at great personal sacrifice we pray for the brothers planning churches with 20 schemes in Scotland we, we pray for pastor Joseph our brother with vision nationals who we love and have supported these years for the church plant he is planting there in urban India. We we pray for those who uh, are connected to us in one relationship or degree or another around the world, sharing your good news. We pray for those we don't know. We pray for those we won't know here on earth, but will celebrate with in heaven. We pray for the brothers and sisters in Kenya and around the world who are being persecuted for the gospel and for your namesake. We stand with them in prayer and with the confidence that you will conquer, that you will vindicate, that they will conquer with you. And that though they might lose everything on earth, they have everything in you and with you forever. Uh, we pray for the churches in North America today and in the United States particular, for the men who are getting up to preach the word today. We pray for the salvation of many in our own city and around the country and yet around the world. Uh, we pray specifically for the, 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 our sister churches in the Three Strand Network. We pray for Oikos in Bellingham. We pray for Damascus Road, Communion Church, for Redemption Road, for Seed Church, Uh, We pray for Briar Community Church. Uh, We pray for the church plants that you are raising up within uh, our network, that they would carry the good news, that they would be your people, that they would carry the good news, the message of your gospel to the ends of the earth and even into our own neighborhoods. Pray for our neighbors, for our friends. Pray for us today, Jesus, that you would empower us to hear, to listen, to know you. You are glorious and wonderful. Help me today, Lord Jesus, as I open your word and proclaim your truth. Help help us as your people, Jesus, to know you, to love you, to serve You. I pray for us, Lord, that You would light us up with a passion for You. That we would worship, not just because it's Sunday, we would worship because we are forgiven. We would worship because we have life. And we would worship uh, You all the time, always in the nooks and crannies of our life, in the day-to-day of our life. That we would help each other, that we would give of ourselves to help each other follow You, to know You, to love You, to grow in the Gospel. And I pray for our friends and for our neighbors and for the neighborhoods of Seattle. We pray for people to come to know you, to be saved and to live. We pray for Finney Ridge and Greenwood in particular, but also on out from Wallingford and out into the university district and out into Ballard and out into our whole city that your name would be made much of here, that your name would be glorified and we would know you, Jesus. Help us, Jesus, to celebrate today because we have so much in you. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Uh, We're going to be in uh, Proverbs chapter 8 today. To kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going, uh, we'll finish up our Proverbs series next week in Proverbs 9. We focused on these nine particular chapters. Uh, Into the spring, we're going to be in 1 John. uh, And right now, there are guys who are getting up at 6 in the morning to study hermeneutics with me, which... If you don't know what hermeneutics is, you can look at it and say, wow, those guys are fools, ambitious. We're working on 1 Peter together, and so we'll be preaching 1 Peter in the summer. And then with prayerful consideration, we're headed into Romans uh, in the fall. Um, These are important things because 1 John tells us about how the church is to live on earth and how the church is to respond with the world. Uh, 1 Peter shows us what it is to be in exile here. Uh, This isn't our home and how to live here. And then Romans shows us the deep abiding truth of who Jesus is. And so that's going to be our course. It's a little different than usual. We usually try and skip around Old Testament, New Testament. uh, But for the foreseeable future, that's where we're headed. You can be reading ahead and praying for me uh, and for the guys who are foolish enough to spend time with me at 6 in the morning to do hermeneutics. And we'll go ahead and dig in. So Proverbs chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. Uh, Feel free to get up and grab one if you need one. Uh, One of the things, this reoccurring theme we've seen in Proverbs again and again and again and again is that there's a framework for reality. That that Solomon is trying to pass on uh, this idea of a framework for reality and that Proverbs is so much more than how to balance your checkbook. Proverbs is so much more than how to do a business deal that Proverbs, uh, to be understood, is to have a framework for reality that is based in understanding who God is, who you are, and how his world works. This is important for us. This is important for us for a number of reasons. But on the top of the list list is the realities. And In Seattle, there's a climate here uh, that is stoked in what we'll call historical positivism. Which is a fun word to say. But what it means is the understanding that scientific and empirical data can produce for us the basic facts of reality. That doing some tests, that understanding some things can give us the basic facts of reality and that's it. This is birthed out of modernism. This is what we get. This is what I see. This is what I know. And if I can't test it, I don't know if it's real or not. Uh, In addition to that, on the other side, of this sort of historical positivism, we have postmodernism, and now, because we don't have a better name for it, post postmodernism. And so, on one side, we have sort of this deep abiding trust of the scientific method as we know it. And on the other side, we have this thing that we don't even know how to name it called post postmodernism, because we, we're not so sure about postmodernism anymore, so we're over it. So, it's post postmodernism. Uh, but at the core of this uh, is the understanding that nothing can really be objectively known. That you can't really know reality. That you as a human being are limited and therefore can't know what's actually happening. So when we think about these things, even in terms of who God is, we say, well, I can't put God in a test tube and test Him, right? Or, and, who really knows? You can't really know if God is real. You can't sing, uh, my God is real for I can feel it in my soul and say it with confidence right? This climate says you can't say, I know the truth. His name is Jesus. He will save you. He will reveal himself to you, but you can. Now, the reason why this is so important for us as we've been working through this these past few weeks is the reality is that the Bible has a framework that's radically different than this, that there is a God to be known. And when you find him, you find life. And when you understand how his world works, your life works better. And the reason we go to God is not so your life works better, by the way. We go to God because God is real, because God is glorious, because God is wonderful, because God is gracious, because God is holy, because God is perfect. And because ultimately God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you actually know the God who made everything, though, you know who he is. You know who you are. And that changes the way you live. Yes. Thank you. I got an amen. I get, this thing happens after Easter. Because in the Easter, you see him, you say, he has risen. And everyone says, he is risen. And everyone's so pumped up that when you say something, people say, amen. And yes, this is not in my notes. It's okay to clap when we sing. You're not clapping for the singers. I know, we, we always, we have this tension. Just let me have a pastoral moment off my outline. We have this tension in our community, in this community here. Where we're like, I don't want to glorify that guy. I'm not clapping for Eric. I'm not clapping for Eric. I'm clapping for Jesus, right? When when I sing, how can I keep from singing? I want to clap when I'm done singing that song because that song is awesome because Jesus is awesome and that's a song about Jesus and I love Jesus. I, when we planted this church... Some of you remember the Wallingford Boys and Girls Club. We're in the Wallingford Boys and Girls Club. There's no child care. And I, I want you to know, if your kids are in here, even if they're in here with us right now, you're so welcome here. I'm so glad that your kids are in here. And I want your kids to feel as much part of this church as everybody else. And uh, that's great. And if they're in kids, ministry, that's great too. But we didn't have that option, right? So I got used to preaching in this tiny, sweaty, noisy room with all the kids playing in the back. Woo! And sometimes people feel like, Oh man, if I say amen or something, it's gonna throw him off. It only throws me off because I'm not used to it. Feel free if you hear something about Jesus, not this guy, not Eric, not Ben, not Chris, not Conrad, not because somebody's standing up here, but because Jesus is awesome. Right? This is us doing this together. You need to understand, even, like, even why we, we do things like pastoral prayer, where we pray for the nations together. We're doing these things. It's congregational prayer because together we're coming to God with these things. This is framework for reality stuff, right? I'm not just praying and you're listening. My hope is we're praying for the brothers and sisters in Kenya together, for example, because they need your prayers, right? We're praying for the missionaries because they've left everything behind. Together. Together. Okay? I hope you understand that the thing that we do together when we open God's Word, yeah, I'm here and I'm preaching and I've prepared the sermon and I've done the thing, but this is together. I need you to be praying for you. I need you to be praying for the people you're with. I need you to be praying for the people who aren't hearing that you guys would go as the carriers of this message. I will return to my outline. <laughs> so here we are looking at Proverbs 8. We'll just go ahead and dig in. I'll read it and we'll, we'll unpack it. We're going to do all of chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? So we've returned to this literary device that is lady wisdom. That wisdom itself is personified by Solomon in Proverbs. Okay, Solomon didn't write all of the Proverbs, but Proverbs 1 through 9, he did write, and often he uses this literary device where wisdom is personified in this idea of lady wisdom. Uh, Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand, uh, beside the gates in front of the town, uh, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence! O fools, learn sense! Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. You need to understand in 2015, this might be one of the most uh, controversial things a person could say from the Bible other than Jesus is king and he's real and he rose from the dead. The Bible understands that there is right and there is wrong. As Christians, we understand there is sin and there is righteousness. There is good, there is bad, there is good, there is evil. This is the understanding of the Bible. God can and is not bound by relativism. It's not just situa- situationalism. God calls the balls and the strikes all the time. All the time. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness, oh, yeah, here's another controversial thing we'll say. Uh, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. There's good, there's bad, there's right, there's wrong. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. So as we begin to develop a framework for reality, we begin to have understanding. The the Hebrew word here, understanding, uh, could also be translated discernment. Okay? Now, we, uh, we must understand that understanding flows from understanding who God is. We understand who God is, and we're going to preach Proverbs continuously as New Testament Christian Scripture. Pardon me. It is Old Testament. We're preaching it as, as New Testament people, as Christian Scripture. Let me be clear of that. Okay. So, our understanding is that the way to understand reality is through God, and as people who live on this side of the resurrection, we understand that God has so clearly revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Many times, in many ways, God spoke. He's done this forever. He's a God who condescends. He is gracious. He is merciful. Genesis chapter 12. There's a pagan in the middle of what's now Iraq, and God shows up and says, you're going to leave your gods, and you're going to leave your place, and you're going to come with me, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. His name's Abraham, and he's a big deal, by the way. God condescended and spoke to him. Moses doesn't have a great record when God condescends and speaks to him, but he does. The prophets, I mean, there's a range of cats in the prophets. Uh, You know, one of my favorites, of course, Micah, he's just a farm boy. He's a farm boy who God speaks to, calls to, and gives a high calling to proclaim the truth to the people of God. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, everybody thinks he's crazy, right? Right? Jesus, did you go out in the wilderness to see someone dressed in fine clothes? No, you went out to see John the Baptist who is proclaiming the truth. The kingdom of God is coming. Right? God speaks to us. God spoke to him. But God has most clearly spoken to us in the person of his son. I cannot say this more times and I will continue to say this every time I have the chance. So you can just memorize it and when I say it again next week and the week after that, you can hear me say it again. You want God to speak to you, please. I'm begging you. Open your Bible and read it. God condescends and speaks to us and tells us the truth. Now, our understanding from this knowledge and this discernment comes from the way we know God more and more that is built up in us from his word as we get to know his son, Jesus. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Everything we want on a human level does not compare to the value of knowing God, right? We're in Proverbs. It's talking about wisdom. But again, if the key to wisdom is knowing God and the key to knowing God is knowing Jesus, right? Step one, step two, step three, follow me. I'm, I'm not, I got to prove it to you, Right? I'm going to show you. I'm going to keep showing you, but I want you to see wisdom comes from knowing God. Knowing God comes from knowing Jesus. Okay? That knowing Jesus, passionately following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, is better than fill in the blank. Anything. Right? The boat, the house, the life family, the kids, the school, the thing, the other thing, the other thing, the other thing, the other thing. Not that you can't have those things, and not that we reject those things. We don't take the good gifts of God and poo-poo them. But, we know that there is nothing more valuable than knowing Jesus, period. Period. We're given these proverbs, right? Parables, pardon me. By Jesus. The kingdom of God. Now, we live in a time and a place where people really like the idea of kingdom of God stuff. There are people who really like kingdom of God stuff. We turn it into like a, a mantra for social justice or something. Uh, we miss and sometimes forget that there's a synonymous idea with kingdom and that's a king. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. When the kingdom of God comes, the king rules and reigns over all things rightly. To be part of the kingdom and to know the to be part of the kingdom is to love, follow and know the king. Okay, So when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like this, don't just think that it's uh, uh, just sort of ethereal, wishy-washy. Jesus is there and present and part of the deal. Okay, So when he says, somebody, the kingdom of God is like a guy who upon finding a treasure in a field, sells everything he has to come back to dig up the treasure, to get the treasure in the field. Doesn't even really want the field. Do you get that? We love real estate in Seattle because they're so... So little of it, right? So, so a field seems really valuable, important. But the thing you have to understand: the field, the field is a, a byproduct. The purchase of the field is a byproduct of this guy selling absolutely everything he has to get after the kingdom of God. We need to be willing to lay everything aside to get to Jesus. Period. It's like a man who finds a pearl in a market sells everything he has. Tells everything he has to get to the pearl. Uh, again, Proverbs has been used to talk about you making good business choices, having wisdom, which you should do for the kingdom. You should be a good business person. And you should make good choices. But you also need to see that the kind of investments that are being laid out for us here in Proverbs 8 is this. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. The best kingdom-minded business decision you can make is to get after Jesus with everything you've got. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Okay, This paragraph here. uh, This is calling us to have our eyes open. Wisdom cries out from the streets. Christians, be awake to who God is, who His Son is, what He's doing and who you are. John Calvin, Chapter 1, Institutes of the Christian Religion. The, buy the book, read the chapter, throw it away, put it on your shelf, whatever. Have it, it's a nice big book, and then people think you read big books, and you can say, well, you know what it says. In the, you don't have to read it, you can just say what I said. Now, as it's on your shelf, the, the greatest way to understand reality first comes from knowing who God is and who we are. Um, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his amazing sermons on the Sermon on the Mount makes this point really clearly. Uh, The the only way to understand reality is to understand who God is and who we are. Now, the Beatitudes aren't just about understanding who God is and who we are, but the gap between us and God. Our, Our sin, our iniquity, our love of self creates a space between us and God. But also understanding who we are because Jesus Christ himself has crossed that gap to make us his own. If you are not a Christian and you're here with us today, this is the difference between the gospel and every other false religion on planet Earth. Every religion on planet Earth gives us methods uh, how to get up to God. And the gospel is about God who came down to get to us. It's not about us being able to make ourselves holy, but God who took people who were unholy and made us holy by His grace and mercy. And there's nothing we can do to earn that love. We need to turn to Jesus and be saved if you're with us today and you don't know him, turn to Jesus and be saved. So we're being called here in eight to have our eyes open to this kind of reality. Because when you understand these things, all of a sudden you understand what you're made for. You're made to glorify God, which can sound lofty. And we can avoid words like glory because I don't know about you, but I don't usually talk about glory with my neighbors, right? Oh, what are you glorying in these days? Oh, I'm glorying in my bass boat these days. What are you glorying in, sir? <laughs> we don't have that conversation. But you need to see the, the, the weight and the presence of the concept and idea of glory throughout the Bible. It is absolutely everywhere. Because God is glorious. The, the Hebrew word really has this connotation of of way- there's a weightiness to God. There's a beauty to God. There's an attraction to God. And as the people of God, we glory in Him by worshiping Him and pointing to Him and valuing Him because when we understand how reality works, we understand who God is and who Jesus is and we seek to find life by glorying in God. And when we do that, when we actually see Him for who He is, we see how beautiful and how wonderful and how joyous and how awesome He is. And so we glorify Him by enjoying Him more than absolutely any other thing right it's it's not draconian or or weird or mystic it's finding our ultimate pleasure and our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction in God and this comes from understanding reality this comes from wisdom this comes from discerning this comes from understanding that God is the thing that's more valuable and wonderful than anything else on the planet in the creation in the universe outside of creation right verse 12 I, wisdom, again, this personification of wisdom, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Hear this. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. That's a weird phrase for us, I think. We've come across this idea of the fear of the Lord a couple of times in these nine verses. But because it's such a foreign idea to us, we sort of need to unpack it every time we get there. Um, but the good news is there, if you've been here for these last weeks and you've heard me unpack the fear of the Lord, maybe you can now unpack the fear of the Lord for somebody else and for yourself, and that's a good thing. Now, what I'm not saying um, when I say this, the fear of the Lord is to stand in awe and wonder of who he is. That's, that's the concept. Now, what I'm not saying is that, that he's not a God to be afraid of in, in particular contexts, right? I'm working on a paper right now on the book of Revelation and there's scary stuff in there for people who have rebelled against God and pushed against God and tried to dethrone God from his right place on the throne. You don't want to get in a fight with God because he doesn't lose. Which is good news for the brothers and sisters in Kenya right now. God doesn't lose and they will be vindicated. Period. And that's good news, by the way. That's good news. This idea of the fear of the Lord's not, that's not exactly what this concept is after, though. This concept is about standing in the awe and the wonder of the weightiness and the beauty of that God. And so to be a person who stands in the awe of his holiness and his perfection, it's ineffable at some point in time. We run out of the right words to talk about it, right? He's all light, he's no dark. He's all holy. He's no unholy. All righteous, no sin. And at some point in time, I can throw in a few more comparisons like that and I run out of words and that's where we meet worship, right? Where all I have left to do is sing about how awesome He is because He's awesome. Now, to stand in awe and wonder of that God in His holiness also produces in us a hatred of things like sin, specifically and maybe most importantly, the hatred of my own sin. When I am looking at Jesus, when I see how he's forgiven me, when I see how he has changed me, and I look at my life before I knew him, or my life as I'm being sanctified in him, those things that are not of him, I want nothing to do with those things. I want Jesus. I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. And I long for the day when he wipes the tears from my eyes and your eyes and puts this world back the way it's supposed to be, and sin and death are absolutely no more. That is as good as done because of the cross of Jesus Christ, by the way. Verse, oh wait, pardon me. Verse 13. So the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Um, interesting, right? Pride and arrogance. Uh, arrogance, great, great word to put here. But the, this word, uh, it means like majesty. So what does that mean, pride and majesty? Well, it's not pride and majesty of God. It's pride. It's me at the center. And majesty is me exalting myself, I think is what Solomon's after. That when I make my, the point of my life, pride is where I try and displace God from his right place in the center of the universe. And I put me in the center. And this kind of arrogance is where I glory in myself and I exalt myself. And I, and I exalt in that center that I've made for myself. Now, of course, I can't actually displace God from his right place in the center of the universe, but in my heart, I sure can. Uh, So I I think what we're really looking at is this pride, this this exaltation that leads us to be self-centered, puts us at the center. It leads to our own self-salvation. It's the sense that you think you can do the Christian life out of your own willpower. Even the Christian life. Yes, the Christian life. And for sure, any other false religion out there. You can meditate good karma or any other thing your way to the good graces of God or the universe. Wrong. Wrong. Because he's all good and no bad and all light and no dark. Any framework, any system, that has us being able to get to God, also pulls God down to a level where a mere human can get up to him. See that? Any system where you can be righteous from your own efforts and your own work pulls God down to a level that the God of the Bible will never go. The God of the Bible is too holy, too right, and too perfect. We do whatever to put ourselves in the center. We're, we're self-sufficient. We rely on ourselves. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Pride and arrogance. in the, the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Now, I, I think for sure when it says perverted, we could most definitely put the things of perversion in, in that spot. But I think really what we're after here is the, re, the reality is that if you're willing to say that you can get up to God, that's perverse. If, if you're willing to say these things in this other alternative, self centered framework, it's a perversion of the truth and it's a perversion of reality. I, I think that's what he's after. Wisdom comes back. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. So it means an idealized reign, the right reign. Now, of course, here on planet Earth, even the best king falls short. Even the best king falls short. And we are awaiting the real king who's really going to fulfill this and really rule with wisdom in his name, Jesus. By me, kings reign and rulings decree what is just. By, my, by me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. God's not hiding from you. He's not hiding from you. If you want to know God, God will make himself known. If you want to get after knowing this God, the God of the Bible, He's not going to say no. We're promised in James that those who ask for wisdom, He's going to give. Uh, Eric read the passage this morning those who seek, find. God doesn't say to one of His children, He says, God, I want to, Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to love you more. I want to follow you more. I need your help. Help me, Jesus. Jesus never says, nah. I've got an appointment in Jersey this week. I'm a little busy. Uh, you know, the guys at seminary, those guys, those guys are really, really the guys I'm after here. It's not true. You want to know God? Well, God is to be known. Get after him. He's not going to hide from you. You want to know your Bible? Read your Bible. You want to talk to God? He's listening. I mean, this is one of the beautiful, amazing realities of the presence of God. When we pray, when we pray out loud, it's a bold thing. When we prayed this morning, we we prayed for the missionaries and those in Kenya and the church plants and the brothers in the region and, and for ourselves and for our city. We're doing it out loud, knowing that God hears us that our requests that are being made known to God are heard by Him. Now, He doesn't treat us like, you know, spoiled children. Not every prayer comes out the way we want it or expect it to, right? That, that's not the deal. But He hears them, and He moves, and He acts on them. And He's with, I mean, God's with you. There are, the Bible says bold things. That the Spirit is indwelling you and that you can walk by the Spirit. Romans 8. That you can walk by the Spirit of God because God is present with you by His Holy Spirit because the cross of Jesus Christ. That as the people of God, God is with us. That's bold stuff. Riches and honor are with me. Now, of course, the greatest honor and riches are fulfilled in the kingdom. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the path of justice, gathering inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Verse 22. There's a lot going on here. I'm going to read the whole thing and try and unpack it quickly. But a helpful framework, if you skip down with me to twenty-eight. It says this, when he made firm the skies above, and then this phrase here, when he established the fountains of the deep. This is word for word from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So Solomon is pulling out of the Hebrew Bible and putting it right there, and he's trying to pull our minds because if we if we knew the Hebrew he's writing and the Hebrew that's in Genesis 1, it would automatically we'd recognize that phrase. Right, and hopefully you do too, because you know, at least when you start your Bible reading plan, you go through Genesis one and Genesis two. Maybe make it to Genesis three. Hopefully, keep going all the way through the rest of the year. But but it's a really familiar text, right? So up in twenty two, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work. Uh, This word "possessed" has sort of almost, and it's throughout even as we see the stuff with gold. It's almost like. Um, can have at times almost even a commercial uh, connotation, that it's something you acquire, it's something you get, it's something you have. Now, of course, God has it forever uh, because he's God, infinitely wise. But you need to see that this is talking about the order in which God created the world. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages go up go, ago I was set up, the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no, uh, uh, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. I think this paragraph's really trying to show us and demonstrate, one, God made everything. Two, God is the king of everything. And three, that king who made everything, made everything with order. Genesis 1 is very orderly. This is trying to say, by the way, there is a framework for reality. God has order in it all, even on down into 31, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Human beings have broke it, but God made it right, good, and perfect. And there's an order to the story of God. There's an order to the, the history of redemption. And there's an order to all things. And God is orderly. You find this wisdom, you find life. Right, We're to look at the created order in glory. We're to enjoy God and what he has done in the world. He made life with wisdom. Again, getting after wisdom, getting after God, getting after Jesus. John 1.1 1, 1. Intentionally draws us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him. Okay? Why is it that when we know Jesus, we understand a framework for reality, it changes the way we live? Because we actually have access to the one who made absolutely everything. And it turns out listening to him in his grace and mercy as he reveals himself to us is helpful because he actually shows us how to live. Why is that helpful? I've got Amazon books all over the place that will tell me how to live. Yeah, but Deepak Chopra did not make everything, right? Oprah did not make everything. Jesus did. Jesus has more wisdom, by the way. 32. We're going to make it to the end of the chapter. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Blessed. This is the same word that we see in Psalm 1. Blessed. It's a special word for blessed, in fact. Uh, this word, blessed, always means God's blessing of us. It's a one-way street. I think in absolutely every reference, if not almost all of them, it's, it's typically God blessing us. It's God condescending. It's God doing something for us. Blessed. Gift. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Here's that same word again. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. It is a blessing to seek after God and living His way. in His way. Uh, be careful here, right? So if you get to Psalm 1 with me, which isn't going to be on the screen, I apologize for that. But Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. So we love a reciprocal transactional relationship with God that says, I do these things and God does something for me. And when we do this, we miss this. If you're believing Jesus, if you're following Jesus, if you're loving Jesus, the blessing is not that you'll have some more money in your bank account. The blessing is that you're loving Jesus, following Jesus, and knowing Jesus. That is the blessing. The blessing of our life as Christians is not a payoff. It's Jesus. Jesus is the payoff. Blessed is the one who listens to me. That is the blessing. Watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my door. For whoever finds me, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Proper name of God. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. To run against the framework of reality that God has revealed to us through his son is not a lifestyle choice. It's a rebellion against God. It's enmity with God. It's pushing against God. It's rebelling against God. For those who find wisdom, find life, obtain favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me, injures himself. All who hate me love death. Towards God, away from God. This is not the only place we've seen this kind of bifurcation in Proverbs and it's not the only place we'll see this bifurcation uh, in the Bible. If you go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We've looked at this before in Proverbs but it's worth revisiting. Reformation is pretty much based on this chapter so it's worthwhile. Uh, And you, this is verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the prince Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of uh, disobedience. Following that framework of reality that's set up by the world. Among, be clear on this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we as Christians, if you don't know Jesus, don't stand here and say, be like us, get right. We say, we're like you and we got right, get right with Jesus like I did because Jesus is awesome. There's a different posture there. There's a radically different posture that says you need to be like me rather than me saying I am just like you and Jesus saved me from myself and gave me life. Get some life. Carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, there's that that self, that pride, that that arrogance, that self-centeredness, that perverted speech. And we're by nature children of wrath. Because, by the way, when you pick a fight with God, He's not a good person to pick a fight with. Like the rest of mankind, but... And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a framework for reality. This is a framework for, this is wisdom. Find this truth. God made everything good. We broke it. Oh, but Jesus is so gracious to us. Jesus is so gracious to us, saves us from ourselves, and gives us life. So now we understand who we are, who he is, and how we live in that world. God is God, and I am not. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus has saved me from myself, empowered me to live, forgiven me for my sins, drunk the cup of God's wrath so I don't have to, and he has set me free to live a life enjoying, worshiping, and knowing him. And this isn't anything that I conjure up from inside of myself, But it's a gift from God because I and you, if you are in him, are his workmanship. And it's a gift. So why? So that none of us can say I did it, but that we can spend our whole of eternity saying Jesus did it. Go with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So how does this work out? How does this framework work out? How do we live it out? Here again is that bifurcation. The word flesh here in Galatians 16 means those things that are organized in our our life and our being against God. Now, this is going to compare unbelievers and believers, okay? I'll read it and we'll unpack it. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, all who fear the Lord hate evil. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Those who fear God hate evil. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Galatians is a big conversation about the law. Our ability to make God happy from the things that we do and by keeping the Old Testament covenant, which is now passed. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Okay? This is obvious. The pride, the arrogance, uh, the perverted speech, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. My countdown timer is beeping at me, which means we don't need to actually unpack all of these. The key word I actually need you to see after this massive list is this phrase right here. Then it blinks at you and you feel stressed out and you can't find the spot. And you just flip your phone over because technology is the hammer. By that I mean it's the tool. Not MC Hammer. Because that wouldn't make any sense. Amen. (laughs) But here's our word here. Things like these. Things like these. Here's a list, and it's not the end of the list. There are things we do that disregard God his framework for reality, life in abundance through Jesus, displaced God from his right place in the center of the universe, puts me as the ruler and dictator of all things moral and right in the universe. Those things are against God. But listen to this. Uh, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This list isn't limited either. Against such things. Against things like these. The things that are us living and walking in a response to Jesus and His cross and who He is. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with the passions of the desires. Now, there are people who want to take this verse and say, now you need to keep crucifying the flesh and you need to keep doing this. Yes, you need to mortify the sin, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. That, that's a fine thing to say. You need to mortify, old-timey English word. You need to war against your sin and the things where you're loving yourself instead of God and others. Absolutely. But we do that because of this verse. That if you love Jesus, the old man is dead. The old woman is dead and is crucified. The things that are against God aren't part of you anymore. Colossians 1, 2, work out this tension. We're taking off the old person. We're putting on the new. But you are who you are in totality through Jesus Christ. You have been crucified. When? 2,000 years ago. Good Friday. Right? Right? 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead because death and Satan and sin could not keep him, but he rose from the dead as a confirmation of this reality to give you life, to give me life, that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. This is a framework for reality. This is a framework that gives us life. This is an understanding and a worship of Jesus that draws us into a life of patience and peace and joy and kindness and goodness and self-control. And we need to know, as we look in Ephesians, as we look in Colossians, as we look here in Galatians, as you look to the book of Romans, as you hear Jesus speak in the Gospels, when you look at the works in the books of the Acts, and when you see what He has to say to Philemon and Timothy and Titus, when you look in the book of Revelation, our framework for reality is understanding that it is finished. Our framework from reality comes from understanding who God is and who we are. And we understand that most clearly through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the person and work of his only son, Jesus. And so when we look to Proverbs, because I'm preaching out of Proverbs right now. I don't know if you know that. We're seeking life. He who finds me finds life, who finds this framework for reality. But as Proverbs showed us right there in chapter one, the beginning of all these things, the beginning of knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord, is an awe and a wonder for who he is, who is so clearly revealed to us in his son Jesus Christ, who empowers us to live by his Holy Spirit. Find me, that's wisdom. Find life, find God. Find Jesus. Reject, find death. Folly. Foolishness. If you don't know Jesus, find Jesus. I have good news, by the way, if you're looking for Jesus, he's a God who finds us, if I'm being most technically technically accurate. But those who seek will find. If you are a Christian, what is the framework for reality. Are you leaning into the climate of Seattle? Of relativism? of Well, you're right from your side and I'm right from mine and you've got your point of view and I've got my point of view. And, but who really knows anyway? So let's just have an afternoon talk show and talk about it, it'll be nice. People say encouraging things. Do we, do we lean into modernity? Well, I'll believe it if I could touch. If I could just touch, if I touch the scars, I'll believe it then. By the way, these things aren't new. Live our lives open. Open your eyes. That's what wisdom is calling us to. The reality of who Jesus is and who you are and what he has done and the forgiveness of your sins and the life he has given you is now and this afternoon and tomorrow. And this is what it means to be the people of God. To be people who are living in response to the reality and in the framework of reality of who Jesus is. He's forgiven us for our sins and given us life in abundance. Uh, In a moment, we're going to transition to communion. Um, We have gluten-free and regular bread and juice and wine and then a basket for the offering of the ministry for the the work of the church. When we do this, we're saying something about reality. Reality. We're saying something about the framework of reality we ascribe to. And that's that we are blood-bought sinner saints because Jesus Christ has died for our sins. Jesus took the bread, and said this is my body broken and blood shed for you. When we do this, we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we come together to do this, we're proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for my sins. And when we take it, we're saying, I'm a Christian. This is for Christians only. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, we're so happy you're here. But this is kind of a family deal. And when we take communion together as the people of God, we are proclaiming. Jesus' body broken and blood shed. This is a celebration. 1 Corinthians warns us, consider our sin before, this, before we do this. Look at ourselves and reflect. Repent of our sin. But when we come up to take this, we come up and celebrate because we understand reality because we know who Jesus is. We understand we're blood-bought sinner saints forgiven for our sins who will live together with him forever. This isn't just a little bread and wine. There's something happening here that we do together and it is a celebration. So when you're ready... Feel free to come up and take this. We'll stand up and we'll sing because we have so much to sing about in the person of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, God, you are good to us. You are better to us than we even realize. You open our eyes. The scales have fallen off. You've taken dead people and made us alive. And that was your plan before the foundations of the earth. And you didn't do that because we're awesome. You did that because you're awesome. You didn't do that um, because you were impressed with us. We, you did that so we would be impressed by you and your glory and your grace and your mercy and that we would celebrate who you are, that we would glory over you, that we would, we would see how beautiful you are, enjoy you and point to you. Help us to do that, Jesus. Help us to have eyes open. Help us to find life. Help us to find life wisdom. Help us to understand more who you are. Help us to know you better, Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we can understand your word more. Make us passionate for your word and the truth of who you are. Help us to know you, to love you, and to serve you with absolutely everything we have with great joy. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.